What I have to tell you, first of all, is that if we're being generous, you could call me a frugal person. Um, Others would call me cheap. And uh, the reality is that many times, I, I love a good deal. I love a good deal. But in terms of having a good deal, sometimes it's just about winning. I like a good deal because I like to win. I like to be able to brag about how much money I saved on this or that. And uh, I, I do believe in frugality and I believe in like, you know, you, you, can, you can get me, st- I'll talk about Aldi for like 10 or 15 minutes. Happy to talk to you about Aldi because it's just, it's a way of life. It's, uh, it's a fantastic, it's all about saving money and you get great, great stuff there. A lot of you never even heard of Aldi. So please, come to me afterwards during Fruits Next Time. I would love to explain to you. It's not just, anyway. So, but there's times when it's annoying. It's just annoying, and I care too much about it. And like I said, it's about winning. So here's a a story. A few years ago, maybe four or five years ago, we're down in Texas for spring break. I have family down there. We rented a van, and um, the... The van takes this special kind of gas called E85, which in some places is a lot cheaper than regular gas. And so I figured this out and I Googled where to get the cheap gas. Yes, I'm on vacation and I'm Googling where to buy E85 gas. That's how annoying I am. And I find it and I find that it's 50 cents cheaper per gallon than the regular unleaded. So I, I'm plotting this all out. I'm like, all right, we're going to leave town. They have it at this one, you know, grocery store, gas station. We'll stop there. I'm going to make sure I, you know, I have almost an empty tank so I can fill it up to get to our next destination. Well, I go to that gas station and this particular gas station didn't have it. And we were too late on time to go to the other one. And I knew that like my wife would kill me if I was like, honey, can we drive out of our way to go to the cheap gas, gas station? She'd be like, no, the answer is no. So instead, I stood there and I watched the gas go into this minivan. And we, it was about tw- ten, 20 gallons. And so with every two gallons, I said out loud, there's a dollar. There's another dollar. I just, I just hated it. I absolutely hated that I was losing $10 on this transaction. Keep that in mind as we read our scripture from Mark 14. This is Jesus, and says he's in Bethany. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let me pray for us just just briefly before we continue. Lord, open our hearts to your word. Open our hearts to your spirit. Be here tonight as I preach. Amen. 
Now, the reason I brought up the gas story just a moment ago is because I see myself in the indignant ones. An indignant person is someone who uh, sees that they're, they're, they're upset about, they're annoyed or they're angered about something that they see that they don't like, that they think is unfair. And so these indignant people are mad. And I see myself in those indignant ones. But I didn't, it's not like I was going to give that 10 bucks to the poor. I just wanted to win. I wanted it for myself. I wanted to, uh, to, 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 to be triumphant in that moment. And I'm not proud of the fact that I live my life too often only concerned about me. And when I live my life cautiously and carefully and frugally, it's only natural that that's going to spill over in how I bring myself to Jesus. Too often, if I'm being honest, I come into my relationship with Jesus the same way. Be balanced, be sensible. And that's not what we see from this woman who is the hero of the story. She enters the home, she goes to Jesus, and she lavishly, wastefully worships Jesus by anointing him with perfume. So some context for our story here. He's in Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives. It's where Lazarus lives, if you know the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. It's his last stop. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem where he is going to uh, be tried and, and, and be killed. And he's at the home of Simon the leper. This is an unfortunate nickname, you know, Simon the leper. I don't, it, he was almost certainly not uh, a leper at the time, but perhaps he was someone who had had leprosy and had been healed by Jesus. But, uh, you know, it's a bummer of a nickname. We learn who this woman is through the, the, the version that John tells, that she's Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Um, but she has this expensive perfume. It's made of pure nard. Uh, I got some from Amazon because I wanted to be able to show you, and you can smell it later on if you want. See, it's very official. It says nard on it right there, right there. That means you know it's real. And it says, it also says it's from Jerusalem. And it was $8, so I don't think it is. I don't think it's real, but you can smell it later. It smells like cheap perfume. Anyway, imagine for yourself what that must be like. But um, she breaks this jar and pours, it, pours this perfume on Jesus' head. Now, what's the deal with the perfume? So it's likely that this, this sort of big, expensive jar of perfume was like a family heirloom that would have been passed down from her mother. It would have been like this cherished, guarded thing that they passed down from generation to generation. Likely, you know, her mother would have given it to her. Now, the other thing I think that is interesting is that this is a man's world, okay? And a woman enters into this man's world. Like, it would be shocking today for this act to happen. But you have to understand, this is 2,000 years ago when women had a, a, a were, were, were not held in high esteem. And she does this very bold act uh, in front of everyone. So what would it be like? Imagine, you're sort of like, I, I get some context for this. So this would have happened at like a, a big feast. So imagine a Thanksgiving meal and someone comes into, so you're like your, your, your Aunt Mary is there and everybody's there and um, you're all, let's say you're going around the room saying what you're thankful for and it gets to your Aunt Mary and Aunt Mary says, I'm just so thankful for and she says whatever she says and then she takes, let's say, uh, you know, some family heirloom vase that had been appraised for $100,000 and smashes it on the ground. 
Like that's sort of the equivalent. Like it's a record scratch moment. Like what just happened? Why did, what, what is going on here? So she's anointing him, which would have been normal, but, but you know, she, she, she does the whole, the, whole, the whole thing. It's worth a year's wages. I don't have anything, you know, in my house that's worth that much money, but imagine that that's what happened here. So no one knows what's going on. It's sort of a strange thing to do. And they begin to rebuke her. They critique her, pointing out what a waste it was for her to use up all that perfume when it could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus hears what they're saying. He rebukes them. He says something very interesting, which we're going to unpack in a little bit. But he says that she should be commended and not critiqued. So I want to point out four things tonight from this passage that we can learn. The first one is this. When others act radically, it's easy to critique. Say what you will about us religious people, but we are, we're really always ready to critique, aren't we? I know I am. I am always ready to critique. Why do they do it that way? Oh, you know, if only they should, they should have done, yeah, yeah, this, this was, this was bad. This was bad. And they really, I, you know, if this hadn't happened and I can't believe it, we are ready to, I I know I am, I'm ready to critique. Um, and as my dad used to say, well, I guess you weren't home when they called to ask your opinion. That's what he would say to me. Yeah, and I'd say, that's right. I left them my number. They could have texted me. They didn't ask my opinion. Um, we have to be careful not to be so ready to attack other people when they, they do things that we don't understand. We say, well, that's, that's not the way it's done. We immediately go to, that, that's... Which I can imagine if I was in the room <laughs> knowing how I feel about not wasting things and this had happened, I would have been like, you can't, I mean, I would have been ready to pull my hair out. What are you doing? You're wasting all this perfume. It's worth so much money. I would have been right in there ready to critique. And I learned a long time ago in training for short-term mission trips that when we experience something new, we, we don't immediately attack it as wrong but we instead ask, why? We just go, hey, I'm, I'm ready to learn. So as opposed to saying, that's wrong, that's bad, we say, hmm, I wonder why. I want to learn something new. And if we can bring that uh, experience to other, other experiences or, or that perspective to other experiences, that would do well for us. It's not our job to judge those who do things differently, especially those who act radically. Some of you might remember in the Old Testament a story where King David... It's captured in 2 Samuel 6, and he brings the ark back to Jerusalem. He dances with the Lord, before the Lord, with all his might, wearing just a linen ephod. Basically, he's dancing in his underwear. He looks foolish. He's leaping and dancing before the Lord. And his wife, whose name is Michael, it says she despises him for it, made fun of him when he entered the house. Now, it could be that she was bitter because she had a man's name. I don't know, but I don't, that's, that's, it wasn't a man. It was a woman's name back then. It's just a, it's a, it's a, it's an English joke related to Hebrew. And anyway, um, it, just because you didn't laugh doesn't mean it wasn't a joke. I just want you to remember that. So David, though, she's like, oh, here you 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 know, she she's sarcastic with him and says. Uh, Oh, look at how, you know, gracefully and, and you know, you've, you've, you've done in front of the Lord here. David doubles down. He says, hey, I'll become even more undignified than this. He doubles down on it. 
I'm reminded of radical acts of missionaries. There was a very famous moment in uh, 1956 when a group of five missionaries and their families moved down to Ecuador to reach this group of people that were then known as the Alca Indians. And we later found out, we, we as white people called them Alcas, which meant savages because we didn't know their names. They found out later that they were named the Warani, but we didn't know because, and they were savage people. They, they, killed, they killed people. And so this, this group of five missionaries felt uh, um, led by the Lord to move down there with their families to try to reach them with the gospel. And uh, one fateful day, the five men who went down there were all killed by these Indians. And it was a huge news story, international news story. And it left behind five widows. And in fact, the remaining widow is a woman named Olive Liefeld. And she was married, at the time she was Olive Fleming, married to Pete Fleming. Olive Liefeld later married Walt and Walt was the senior pastor here. So I've, Olive and Walt attended here. So she, um, and she's the remaining widow who's living from that experience. And she has an amazing story. And a lot of people critiqued right away. They were like, what a waste. What are you doing? These five men gave their lives for what? For these, to, 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 to tell these savages about Jesus? Well, that radical act inspired countless missionaries over the years. One of them most famous is a guy named Jim Elliott. We're going to come back to Jim later. But Jim Elliott, he had these memoirs that later got published and he became uh, in his death so much more powerful than he ever you know, would have been. And then the story of redemption that happened in those Warani people and how many of them came to faith as a result of, of all of this. But it's this you know, unbelievable story. So many people critique them. What a waste. And yet, they, they were following Jesus and they, gave, they paid for it with their lives and, and God absolutely had a plan for that. So, it is easy for us um, to critique and not every radical act by a Christian is a good one. There's been plenty of foolish and misguided things that Christians have done. But it's not our job to police that. And I'm preaching to myself uh, with this point as much as I'm preaching to anyone else. That when others act radically, before we first just judge and go, roll our eyes or whatever, and be like, oh, that's weird, that we stop and not critique. It's easy to critique when people do things radically. And we don't, we don't, we're not comfortable with them. So that's number one. Watch our critiques. Number two, our love for God should occasionally look odd to an outsider. When we look back at our lives, I think we will all regret the ways we didn't take more risks in our faith. The times when we let fear of what others think limit our convictions and our passions in following Jesus. And, you know, if if our lives as believers look exactly the same as the lives of people who don't believe and don't follow Jesus, there's probably something wrong. I remember hearing a pastor say, talk about this years ago. Like he says, if, if everything we do looks exactly like everybody outside the church, how will the goodness of God be displayed? First Peter talks about the idea that we're, we're supposed to live such good lives among non-believers that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they will see our good deeds and glorify God. 
So do we, have, do we, do, we do anything that, that, that stands out? That is, if we spend our money the same way, if we spend our leisure time the same way, if, if, if our lives look exactly the same as everybody else, um, maybe there's something wrong. And I'm not saying, okay, I got to go figure some, out, some weird thing I need to do. No, 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 no. You don't need to figure anything weird out. There's enough weird things that the Bible calls you to that if you just are obedient to what the Bible says, it's going to look weirder and weirder and weirder. Uh, especially as time goes on. Because just normal acts of obedience that Christians do are going to look more strange in comparison to what looks normal in the world. So occasionally, our lives should look a little bit odd. Point number three is this. And it's probably the most important one. Jesus is worthy of lavish worship. So like I said, I, I, don't, I don't own anything that's worth a year of my wages, most of us don't. But the idea of taking that thing and offering it to Jesus as an act of worship, that, that thought would never occur to me. But it should. Because Jesus is worthy of the best things we have. Our very lives. In fact, he is worthy of lavish worship in every aspect of what we do. And we have this incredible example of, the, of this woman and what she does. She gets it. She brings her most expensive th- item to Jesus and she just wastes it on him. It's not practical. It's not being a good steward of one's resources. And yet this woman does it and Jesus doesn't stop her. Jesus doesn't say, well, what are you doing? You're being so wasteful. No, sell that money and give it to the poor. He says, yes, why? Because he's... God, because he is worthy of worship. He receives her worship because he's worthy of that wasteful kind of worship. And, and this is not primarily to be understood in the context of singing or church attendance. It, it, it would include that, but it's not just, well, you need to sing more, you need to sing louder. Uh, you know, Gabe, you need, or sorry, Gavin, you need to clap more. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's not the context for this. Um, the deal is that our relationship with God is about love than it's about anything else. There's a guy named Jack Deere who came and spoke uh, at a Christ Church event and he said this about discipleship. Discipleship is just the process of becoming more and more like Jesus and following him and doing what he says to do. And he said discipleship isn't primarily about passing on mentoring skills It's about loving someone and teaching them to love what you love, which just kind of struck me because I, you know, as a pastor, you hear about, oh, we got to, we got to disciple people, we got to train them up and you got to teach them, you know, and we, we, we've got lots of tips and tricks for things, but primarily it's about Jesus, what Jesus did. Jesus came and he, he loved his disciples and he showed them how to love each other and he showed them how to love God. It's primarily about love. And as I said before, it's about worship, but it's, it's not primarily about singing. Worship, as expressed in singing, it's a part of that. And we're going we're gonna to have a final song tonight um, as we close. But the issue is about real worship versus worship that is just going through the motions. So the question is, do you bring all of yourself into your experience of worshiping God? Do you bring everything 
into every worship experience. So like here and on Sunday mornings when you come to worship, like, yes, that's a fair question. Are you bringing all of yourself into that experience? But also when you when you worship God in your life, are you, are, you, are you worshiping God? There's this dynamic where like both things should, should inform each other. So like when we come into a worship service like here at, at the church, we should bring all of our lives here and not just like, okay, it's religious time. I'm going to put on my religious kind of costume and do my religious thing here. Like God wants all of us here the mess and the good and everything. And if you're happy, come here. And if you're sad, come, you're, you're welcome here. It's not about, you know, feeling a certain way. But also worship is, is about when you leave this place, it's not like, oh, I'm going to take off my, you know, sort of church outfit and then I'm going to go live my life until I get to come back here. No, it's about going. And when you're sitting in, you know, your 15,000th Zoom class and you want to just like, oh, I just want to, poke at my ears and eyes and just I can't stand but do you bring yourself like and 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 worship God with your whole life and understand that that God doesn't just live here God's everywhere like do we do we have an understanding and an awareness of worshiping God with our whole lives everywhere we go And mostly understanding that it's about love. It's not about, man, again, religious people are so good at, at giving you rules to follow. But it's primarily about loving God, loving Jesus, and loving the things that he teaches us to love. And in some, for, for some of you, that's gonna, that's gonna take place like, I've talked about this in the past, but like I, I, I find God in, in things that other people don't find God in. Like when I stopped hard to think about in, in my math class, which some of you are like, no, Satan invented math. That can't be God. But like, go with me here. And it's, it's ironic because today's Pi Day. But when I, when you think about Pi, 3.14159265358. I memorized it one time when I was out to whatever place that is. That number just, it's just floating out there and it helps us with everything. It is a holy number. I don't, I, it, it's, just, it's just there. It doesn't ever repeat and it goes on forever. What? That's, that's a thing? And oh, also it can help you figure out, you know, circumferences and surface areas and volumes of round things. Yeah, but there's no God. No, there is. And pi tells me that there's a God. I'm serious. Like, I'm not being joking at all. Like, pi makes me believe in God. It's just not, it just cannot be. It's mysterious and goes on forever. Like, come on. That makes me want to worship. There's certain TV shows and movies and things that I'll watch, and I'll just be in awe. Like, those of you who have heard me talk about this Netflix movie, and you can watch, um, you're wondering which Netflix movie I'm going to say that makes you want to worship, aren't you? Well, it's about, it's, it's, it's the Netflix movie about an octopus. That's the one. Uh, it's called My Octopus Teacher, and it, it blows my mind how incredible an octopus is. Just go watch it. All I'm going to say is just go watch it, and if you hated it, um, I'll give you $5 in cash. How about that? 
But you have to really watch it and really try. And if you really hated it, I'll give you $5. Because uh, it is unbelievable what an octopus is and what it can do and how if it gets... Anyway, it just doesn't... And you just go, yeah, it's just random, you guys. It just sort of happened. It was just evolved and oops, there was an octopus one day. No way! No chance! This octopus, it's, it's like a liquid animal and it can... Do, no way! It's incredible. I told a skeptic Christian Schmidt about this movie and he watched it and he said 10 out of 10. So just, I'm not the only one, all right? So Jesus is worthy of lavish worship and when we see the world that he's made, we don't worship, I'm not going to worship an octopus, but I am going to worship Jesus because it's like, dude, that was crazy what you did with that octopus. That was insane. It's like a magic creature. What it can do. Go watch the movie. It changes colors, you guys. And it can walk on land. It's incredible. All right. But we have to stop and not just, like, we're so just like, oh, whatever. And you have seven trillion things we could watch and, and nothing excites us and makes us, I mean, it gets back to Luke's talk last, last, last week. What are you in awe of? That should make you worship God and realize he is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our worship. So my final point is this. So it's one, when others act radically, it's easy to critique. Two, our love for God should occasionally look odd. Three, Jesus is worthy of lavish worship. And then four, when we worship Jesus wastefully, the gospel is proclaimed. So Jesus says in this passage that she's anointing him for his burial And in this story, her worship points not only to Jesus himself, but it points to the cross. It's a symbolic act, but it's a significant one. I don't know that she even knew what she was doing, but Jesus takes her act and points to the gospel that he will soon die so that others may live. Jesus knows what no one else does about him, that uh, he is going to be crucified. And Someone is crucified as a criminal, as Jesus would. He, would, he was not going to be getting anointing. Like when you when when die, they would anoint you, and then you would get a proper burial. He wasn't going to get one of those. So he received this as, oh, she, this is, she's preparing me for my burial, which is going to happen because I'm crucified as a criminal. I'm not going to get one of those. So his final statement here is very interesting. He says, wherever the gospel is preached, people will tell about this woman's act. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard a gospel. I've never heard anyone share the gospel using this story. But I think maybe we should because any presentation of of what the the core story of Jesus is should talk about his worth. It should talk about the treasure that he is, that he's the answer to our heart's greatest longings. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our lives. And you guys, we struggle with this, right? We have FOMO. I do. I have a lot of FOMO. FOMO. I worry, oh, what's going on? Am I missing out on something? Is there some fun thing happening? I'm not getting to be part of it. And I know you guys do that too. Are people hanging out without me? Is there something going on? What, what am I missing out on? Uh, when you get to, to college next year, you're going to be like, oh, I'm, am I having the experience? Because like my friends seem really a lot happier than me and on Instagram. It's all a lie. Okay, they're, not, they're pretending and, you know, you're not missing out. But we have this thing. And we can do that on a cosmic level with our lives as we follow Jesus. We can go, Really? Am I really doing this the right way? Am I really? I'm, I'm missing out on stuff. I know I am. The things I'm saying no to because what, of what Jesus is calling me to, it's hard and we think we're missing out. 
But when we're focused on what we're missing out on, we're missing the heart. We're missing out on the incredible deal that we're getting. We give our lives to Jesus, and he gives us everything. He gives us himself. He gives us meaning. He gives us purpose in this life and in the life to come. He gives us the freedom from having to worry about ourselves and thinking that it's about us. Because when we think it's about us and when we focus on, the more you try to make yourself happy, the more unhappy you are. The more you stop caring about whether you're happy and just go, God, I just want to give my life to you, the happier you become. Jesus gives us that gift in himself. I want to invite the band to come up. We're going to sing a final song together tonight. And I, I mentioned Jim Elliott earlier. And he's got a famous quote. Uh, some of you who have been around a while have heard this a lot. Some of you might be hearing this for the first time. And if you are hearing it for the first time, I hope you will write it down. I hope you'll remember it because it is incredibly profound. Jim Elliott was one of the men who died in Ecuador. Many people saying foolishly gave his life just to try to reach these men with the gospel in Ecuador. In one of his journal entries, as he was planning his trip to go down to Ecuador, he wrote this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I'm gonna read it one more time. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep our lives. We can't keep it. There's no guarantee that any of us is going to be around tomorrow. We, we, don't, we don't have any control over our lives. The pandemic has taught us that, I hope, if it's not taught us anything else. We really don't have control. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, which is eternal life. It's a win, win, win. It's an eternal cosmic win, win, win. When we give our lives to Jesus, which aren't ours to begin with, He gives us what we can't ever have taken away, which is eternal life. He is worthy of our lives. The best use of my one life is found when I give it to Jesus, when I radically and wastefully worship him with all that I have. That is not a waste. Let's pray.